This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. On today's episode, we're bringing you another conversation between Dr. Robert Grayboys, Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus, and Dr. Temple Grandin. This time around, they continue their discussion of autism and also talk about the logistics surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine distribution and much more. The audio, which is taken from a virtual live event at the Institute for Humane Studies, as well as the transcript of this conversation has been slightly edited for clarity. I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, Temple, but uh, first, let me welcome her to this Speak for a Sandwich gathering. Temple, glad to have you with us once again. Wonderful to be here. In 1993, Temple vaulted to worldwide fame after The New Yorker published Oliver Sacks' essay on her entitled An Anthropologist on Mars. That essay changed how the world perceives autism and the autistic mind. In particular, the essay and Temple's subsequent writings gave the world a lens on the idea of extreme visual thinking, both its deficits and its gifts. In the splendid HBO film Temple Grandin, Claire Danes, who played the part of Temple, says... I could see the world in a new way. I could see details that other people were blind to. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, it is really worth it. And the essay as well. In his essay, Oliver Sacks admitted that Temple defied his own prior beliefs about autistic people, specifically her profound sense of introspection and her capacity for humor. As professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University, as an author, speaker, and as an entrepreneur, Temple has arguably done more for the humane treatment of animals than anyone in human history. And she's almost certainly the most famous openly autistic person on earth. So let's get started. Temple's topic today is use of visual thinking for solving problems. And we're going to take that in many directions. Temple, to start it off, please tell us what you mean by visual thinking. Perhaps give us a vivid example of where it's useful and perhaps a vivid example of where the lack of visual thinking is a problem. Well, when I design cattle facilities, I mean, I could see them in my head. Now, in order to be able to do that, I had to visit a lot of existing things because I have to have pictures in the database. And for certain kinds of problem solving, the visual thinking is a real asset. Now, the problem I've got is I can't do algebra, and that is something that just keeps you out of a lot of things. I spent 25 years working with construction, big projects. I worked with a lot of really brilliant, skilled tradespeople that invented all kinds of stuff. They barely, some of them barely graduated from high school, but they were inventing things. There's two kinds of ways to do engineering. There is the mathematical way, and then there is the visual thinking. And I've looked at the Mars rover, for example. I mean, the mathematicians got it there. But I've been studying the camera, what they call the mast cam. It's got hand-done wiring on it. Let's give that skilled tradesperson credit for the beautiful hand-done wiring. It's done right, so that camera's going to last a long time. Because if that wiring doesn't work, the camera doesn't work. And I tracked down the company that made it. It's a small shop. It was a bunch of geology professors from um, Arizona State University where I got my master's. And the head of it's about my age. They were geology professors. Discovery through imagery, through imagery. 
And the geologists, they're going to be less mathematical, but they wanted a beautiful camera. I'm sure there's some visual thinking involved in that. And they had to hire some computer people and they had to hire some mathematicians, but they want this beautiful camera. I just can't believe the pictures that it takes. And then there's also other cameras on the lander that are commercial, some of the smaller ones. Any examples of failure for lack of visual thinking that you can uh, you can toss well, up? Well, I just was at the Denver airport. I, it's been a year since I've flown. They had the big fiasco mess where they're going to redo the main terminal building. And they spent a year ripping up the inside of the main rotunda and making a big mess in there. And they were going to build something they couldn't build. You know, I could see it. The train station still torn up. They yanked all the ceiling material off. And I look up at the train station ceiling just on my first flight in a year and pre-stressed concrete beams. You don't put columns through there without replacing the beams. And I could see where they'd cut the floor to look for where they could put columns down. You can't build that. You have to replace those beams. And you're inside a tent. No, they're not going to do that. They're redoing the inside. Much more modest product projects. Going to be nice. Going to be nice what they're going to do. But they had a disgustingly high default payment. They had to pay to the people that ripped them off on this. And I spent a lot of time on concrete construction. We build meatpacking plants out of pre-stressed beams. You can't cut these things. You have to replace them. Then you have to have the holes for the columns. And I go, how could you do that? Well, this gets back to visual thinking because you probably didn't have some gnarly old maintenance guy sitting there saying, you can't do that. No, they're not going to be doing that. The new project they've got there, it's going to be nice, but much more modest. They're going to have some really nice check-in kiosks and things. All that's buildable. It'll be nice. But you probably need the visual thinkers to stop the original project. It's a big astronomical waste of money. But boy, they had a beautiful virtual reality video of what they were going to build. Only problem was, couldn't do it in that space. Great example. You happen to be talking today to a group of people whose focus is the field of economics. Now, here at George Mason University, I'm happy to say that the economists tend to have a healthy eclecticism, uh, a respect for you know, uh, different ways of looking at economic problems. Some of them work in mathematics, some in algebra, some in words some in diagrams, uh, all sorts of ways. But that's really unusual. Uh, The field of economics has really been overtaken for many decades by kind of a rigid methodological orthodoxy, specifically that all truth lies in algebraic equations and statistical significance measures. My doctoral dissertation from Columbia was mostly algebra. I did it that way because I wanted to get my doctorate. And that's the way you did it. Yeah. In the field you encounter do you see a lot of similar orthodox where there's there's one way to do it it's got to be mathematical got to be algebra and we're not going to accept any other methodology well, we're getting there. into a real statistics thing right now if you haven't in in animal research use the latest statistics you don't you don't have rigor now i've reviewed a lot of journal articles and i look at the method section and i go okay you may have all those fancy statistics but you didn't tell me what breed of cattle you used and how you housed rangers or some rodents. You didn't tell me how these mice were housed. And that can affect the results of the experiment. And then the thing in economics, I mean, some of that was based on people being rational. Do you think all the stuff that's going on with GameStop right now is rational? No, it's absolutely not. You are investing in an old-fashioned mall store with the declining customers. You say, I see that. And I see malls where half the shops are not rented. 
You see, that's the way I look at it. Like when we started having some economic problems in 2008, one of the things I looked at is what I call the hard indicators. How many unrented shops am I seeing or recently closed shops? See, that's the kind of stuff I look at. But there's a need for both kinds of thinking. Let's take the Mars rover. The mathematics got it to Mars. So the camera with the hand on wiring could take the pictures. So you need to have both. The late great physicist Richard Feynman said that, get it right, mathematically equivalent information formats need not be psychologically equivalent. In other words, how you present the data, how you present statistics matters a great deal. Not everyone responds the same way to every presentation. Some people like algebra, some geometry, some tabular presentations. They can all say precisely the same thing, but their impacts on a reader or listener may be very different. And that's probably true. But one thing is a visual thinker. I am into practical outcomes on things. You know, how do you actually build a factory and make it actually work? You know, that that's, I look at this mess in Texas. You have four different kinds of power sources, nuclear, coal, gas-fired, and um, a windmill, wind power, all froze. Now I start looking at how I solve the problem. What, what do I winterize? Well, if the thing that froze is on the site of the power plant, that's going to be a lot easier to fix than 100 wellheads out there. Now I see them. If I got to winterize 100 wellheads, that's going to be a real mess compared to winterizing maybe turbine building. You see, and I see, well, yeah, I build a building over it and put heat in it. But at least it's something on the site. One thing I have to winterize, not a whole big distributed thing. Like every windmill, you didn't buy the winterized version. But you see, as I think about it, I see it. And I think in a lot of these things, we're getting too many things where people are just seeing spreadsheets and seeing mathematics. Where is the actual thing? I mean, that thing in Texas, that was a complete mess. And then I also read in the Wall Street Journal that it it messed up some um, chemical plants that make stuff for plastics. And they're having a hard time getting them started again. I don't know if they're broken or whether there's a big ramp up process they have to go through. But if I was involved in trying to figure out how to deal with that, and I don't know anything about chemistry, but I want to talk to people that run those plants, they're not going to lie to me and find out what's going on. But it's all about real things. There's nothing abstract. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't, you know, I think I talked before about Fukushima. I can't design a nuclear power plant. But I would say, hey, you got to have waterproof doors on this because if it floods, I've got an electrically operated pump. It's not going to run if it gets wet. And if it, I need when I need that pump, I really need it because if don't have it, it burns up and it's horrible if it burns up. I might add, in addition to visual, there is sort of a tactile thinking. My wife and son and I loved to go to, been a couple of times to Frank Lloyd Wright's architectural studio in Arizona. And he required the students there in the architecture school to do everything. They were not allowed to build a house until they had personally dug a foundation, laid bricks, hammered beams. They weren't allowed to design a kitchen until they had actually spent time cooking for the whole school and to actually feel how a kitchen works and how it looks. So, uh, and I know that kind of reminds me of some of your your work with the, well, uh, the cattle station. I've done things like that. I've operated all the equipment I designed, for example. And, and I have a thing where I say, we got to get the suits out of the office so that something is not just a spreadsheet. But you see, you need all the different kinds of minds because they have complementary skills. The mathematicians, for example, got the rover to Mars. 
um, but you're going to need the craftsman to make a beautiful camera that's going to last a long time. You see, they're both important. Just returning to my field again, when I was at Columbia University, there was another student who was telling me about his doctoral dissertation he was working on. It was something to do with liquor, the distribution of liquor, and had a question trying to resolve of how liquor stores operate and was having trouble teasing it out of the data. And I said, well, why don't you go to some liquor stores and, and ask them? And he was horrified. It just, it was, no, you can't do that. It's, it's all in the algebra and the statistics mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you go in the big databases. You, so um, go, mm-hmm. go on that. Well, and you've uh, got to go to the stores and find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've done some stuff. I've worked, I've been in the back room of a lot of stores and stuff, but one of the things is their supply chain. How much room do they have? How much uh, inventory can they store? I have a friend that, that their family owns a liquor store. And uh, they got robbed. I mean, not no burglarized because there was nobody there. They uh, hauled off the safe and uh, stole a bunch of expensive stuff there. So another thing you think about is, well, how much inventory would you want to have? Too, there's a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of things. But supply chain management in like for industrial stuff, like I know with the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, there's a lipid ingredient they have a difficult time getting. Haven't been able to find out what it is. But if I was in charge of the policy, I want to know what that ingredient is. What can I do to get more of it? I have to know what it is first. And I'm not a chemist. Chemistry is like magic to me. But something has to go in one end of something. And then chemistry does its magic and something comes out. So where do I buy the thing that goes in? What is it made of? And if I'm buying it overseas, where is it located? Am I, is it, I probably can air freight it over. You know, we're not talking about you know, a bulk commodity here, but I'm seeing that I'm seeing those big containers that roll onto the plane. I'm seeing when I was down at the airport all the time before the pandemic, I'd go and have ice cream at Ben and Jerry's and they'd be loading cargo on a great big, huge airplane. I'd watch them load that cargo and they'd put it in one of those big containers and ship it over. You see, I see it. And then you think about how much inventory do I have to store? Because a lot of people now are the economists were saying, let's do just in time for car manufacturing. We got problems now and not enough electronic chips to put in cars. Just in time when you have supply chain disruptions is not too smart. You see it mathematically with all your algebra and everything else that come out great. But as soon as something goes wrong, you've got for one little tiny part this big that can't build a car. When I've been asked uh, you know, who are the most important people of the last century, I always include, I like to include some sort of lesser known names, but uh, one of the top of my list is Malcolm McLean, who invented the shipping container. I assume that some mighty serious visual thinking went into the, the, the miracle of that invention and, and what it could possibly do. Well, and it's something that was such a radical idea. And you also had to invent all of the, uh, the cranes to put it on the ship. But you also had to think about, well, like backhauls. You don't want to just give shipping containers away. I did read that 95% of the shipping containers came from China. They can fabricate them really cheaply. But I know that um, you know, we get a lot of goods over here from Asia and China and other countries, and then you got to have backhauls. And we're backhauling stuff like alfalfa hay to feed cattle. Just they have something to put in it for a backhaul. Backhauling grain in them. You know, bulk commodities just so you have something to ship back so you don't pay to ship an empty box back. 
read a book a couple of years ago. That's how sushi became a worldwide cuisine because they had all these planes bringing electronics from Japan and nothing to carry back on them. And someone got the idea of, well, let's put Canadian fish on there and send it back to the sushi markets. And that became the whole sushi boom. Well, that's the thing. You have to find a backhaul. But sometimes it's stuff like, uh, well, well, one of the backhauls that got stopped was, um, you know, trash for recycling. Because you were getting trash sent back in shipping containers that was like really all horrible, toxic stuff. And I went to this eco seminar and they were talking about recycling plastics. I think one of the things they're going to have to do is um, have less containers where it's mixtures of different types of plastic laminated together because they don't mix and recycling. But where they used to just send that stuff off in a shipping container, like the country, other countries now are going, we don't want this crap. And so you've gotten a situation where the recycling is more expensive than new material. Well, and I think one of the things they're going to have to do is, well, you can't make a layered package. I mean, I look at things like liquid detergent. The package is worth more than the stuff that's in it. We probably don't even need to be using that product. In the podcast, we talked a lot about vocational education and the loss of it. Now, uh, I had subsequent to that, uh, I had some conversations with people from my hometown. I came from a little place called Petersburg, Virginia, small working class community south of Richmond. And when I was in high school, Petersburg High School there in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, vocational education was a huge part of the school. They had shop, they had uh, auto repair, they had plumbing, they had electrical, uh, and all that stuff's gone. So I went on Facebook after the podcast came out, and I asked hundreds of uh, friends, tell me about shop and what did it mean to you and what did it do for your life? Well, I, I got endless lists of people talking about, you know, changed my life completely. I became a mechanic in the, in the Navy all because of what they, what I had learned in high school. They were just one testimonial after another. And lots of them saying, I wish my kids could have this because it's gone. Uh, and even one of them mentioned, and I'm trying to get more details on it, said, you need to learn about how the, the shop classes and the electrical classes, the plumbing classes actually went out. And this is long before Habitat for Humanity. They just built a house as, as part of the, uh, their project at the school. And a lot of them went into these fields. Well, that stuff's gone. Tell me your concerns over the loss of that. How did we lose it? And how do we get it back? Well, we've lost a lot of things because I've been looking more and more into um, who makes things. I found an article in The Economist magazine. It was about just you know, a few months ago about the state-of-the-art machine for making electronic chips. It comes from Holland, not the U.S. It's based on physics research done in the U.S., but it's from Holland. There's a picture that they, the company gave out to the press where the covers are taken off. This thing's the size of a bus. And you can see all these mechanical pipes and stuff. And I go, wait a minute. It took a lot of skilled trades to build that. I think last time in the podcast, I thought about the poultry processing plant we don't know how to make anymore. I now have found out that for making the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, there's a little device they force the ingredients through. It's a mechanical device. Somebody made that in a shop. The vaccine cannot be manufactured without this microfluidic device that I just read about today in my chemical um, engineering magazine. It's mechanical. And then, let me t- and then let me tell you, Moderna and Pfizer did not interview for this article. You know, you knew, and I'm thinking about it. Okay, that's a little nozzle of some kind. I haven't seen a picture of it, but I know what that is. 
and you're mixing the ingredients at just the right ratios, the right pressures, the right flow rates. And then the magic chemistry happens inside, which to me is magic, but the device is not. The device is something I can understand. But somebody had to make that thing. And they interviewed an old professor that, you know, had worked on the stuff, the, you know, the, for the article. That's a skill to trade. And you can't make those vaccines without this thing that I just learned about this morning. Because I'm always looking for things where taking out skilled trades things can hurt. So you get the chemist, but then you have some guy in the shop that don't know anything about chemistry. So we've got to make this little thing and we got to do these pressures and this. He makes some little gadget and the thing works. And it's probably being kept as a trade secret because it, it, it may not be completely patentable. And I know something about patent rules. But that's, you have to have that thing. You see that and it's a skilled trade thing. It's a device. It's a little piece of equipment that does it. Somebody had to make that. You see, this is where we're we're paying the price for taking this stuff out. How did we lose it? Do you have a sense of that? I mean, it's well, an the idea I think originally, and I think it was very top down and very verbal, is everybody's going to go to college, and top, verbal thinkers I find overgeneralize. Whether it's about autism or whether it's about education, everyone's going to go to college, and they didn't think about you know who's going to fix all the broken electric wires that are falling down. Or I just saw a picture of a Houston of a data center that had been flooded. I think it was Hewlett Packard. All, a whole bunch of expensive stuff flooded, and they're going to move out of there. They don't want to deal with any more floods. You know, it's going to wreck a data center that flooded. At the verbal thinkers, I don't think they saw, since they don't, they don't visualize, the need for the skilled trades. You see, we're now, I'm reading an article in Chemistry and Engineering News about a device that is critical for making the vaccine. It's a physical device. It's a it's a something with no, microfluid. It has little nozzles, and you force the lipid and the RNA through it in just the right way, and the magic happens. We'll leave that for the mathematicians and the chemists. But they didn't wouldn't have made the device. See, this is where you have to have the different kinds of minds. And they, you see, and then when you first took this out. It didn't hurt for a while because you, you see, you know, it took 20 years for a lot of the people to retire. But I'm old enough and you're old enough to remember when we were young people working on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Holland's making the chip making machine and the poultry processing plant is because they didn't take their skilled trades out and they don't stick their nose up at it. And I'm talking high end skilled trades. I'm not talking about roofing or asphalting or something like that. I'm talking about the high end stuff. I will have to do a little brag. Uh, you inspired me after our last podcast. Temple explained to me, as either in the podcast or a phone conversation, she was talking about having gone through the vaccination and how she was observing the whole flow of movements through uh, this Colorado facility where she got her vaccine. So when I went, my wife and I went for our vaccines, I did the same because you did. And I was looking, it was really a marvelous process. I'll have to give it to them. I live in oh, Alexandria. Some of them have done a good job. Some of the drive-throughs, I've mm-hmm. seen aerial photos of how they did the drive-throughs at a convention center or a stadium. Somebody, they, a lot of really good thought went into it. I just talked to somebody the other day that did one of the drive-throughs and they said it was extremely well organized. They were really impressed. Well, this one was great, but I was looking for choke points, like some of them that you described. And I I, I identified one. I said, it keeps moving smoothly, and then it reaches this choke point. And what it is, is there's a screener asking you a battery of questions, 
through a mask. Oh, there's, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and back and forth and back and forth. So I don't know. I dropped an email to the mayor of the city and said, you've got a great system going. But at these points, why don't you just print up a piece of paper and let the screeners point to the questions? And uh, I don't it's know. It's a if real my simple solution. It is. And I don't know if my letter did it. But when we went for our second shot, they were doing that. And there was there was absolute perfect flow through because no we went, didn't have a two way mask conversation. Well, no, going and on. they can just read the paper, and then the only time you do a conversation if somebody couldn't read for you know, some reason, then you would you then you do it all verbally. But most people can just read the paper. And so I will attribute that to you. You may have helped the people of Alexandria, Virginia. But you um, see, lots of times the thing I found that that on on getting rid of choke points, sometimes it's very simple, and then sometimes you got a choke point. It's not going to be simple to get rid of but that was i found a lot of different things sometimes something very simple uh makes a big difference i just got sent an email it had a picture of a ramp on it for loading sheep and i'm going wait a minute the uh, cleats are too far apart the sheep will slip that's a very simple thing so you just add an additional plate and the sheep are going to walk up there a lot easier i saw that the instant i looked at it i go wait a minute the cleats are too far apart they're going to slip between them but the thing is, the verbal thinker doesn't see that. And that was sort of like, everybody's going to go to college. Well, you didn't even feel, start feeling the hurt from taking those skilled trades classes out of the schools till 10, 20 years later when they retired. You see, that's the problem. And now we are seeing it. I think, you know, well, that camera, I think one thing that's interesting about that, a bunch of geology professors, they like to look at rocks and stuff. Mm -hmm. It was all about seeing stuff. Yeah, and they had to hire mathematical people. Stuff has to be programmed. Yeah, and they hired computer people. Geologists are behind that camera. I thought that was really interesting. It is. So I've got a uh, research thesis. I've mentioned a little bit about it to you in the past, something I'm going to, to work on later in the year. I mean, it's in three parts. I'm going to quickly read the three parts, and then I'd like to talk about them in depth with you. Mercatus and the and IHS, the two sponsors of this group, are, are very interested in entrepreneurship, in small firms, in how markets work, and the unique role that they play in an economy. So my thesis is this. First of all, the over overarching part is that innovation seems to come from small firms, and we mm -hmm. sort of take that as a pr primitive assumption. And I want to get in depth as to why that is. So number one assumption is unconventional thinkers, people who are autistic, ADHD, etc., are the source of a great deal of the world's innovation. And we'll come back to that. The second is that large established organizations, governments, large corporations, established corporations, resist hiring people like Temple Grandin. And if they do hire someone like you, they waste the gifts that you have by trying to force you into sort of a conventional employment path. And the third one is that the one environment that gives free reign to people like you is a small business, an entrepreneurial enterprise where you're not answering to HR and a big bureaucracy. So let's go through those three points. If All we right. Could. I, I definitely. Well, the vaccine's a perfectly good idea of um, small guys innovate, little guys innovate. It's, by, it's Pfizer BioNTech. Pfizer bankrolled it. And I want to commend them for doing that. Little guys innovate. And a lot of times will innovate with stuff that's considered weird ideas. One example is my grandfather and the automatic pilot. 
Um, there was a guy, a guy that came up with this crazy idea for three little coils. Everybody in aviation knows the dumbest thing that ever was. There was only one way to make an automatic pilot. You wire a plane's controls to the compass, which was a mess. And he and this autistic guy worked in a loft, figuring out how to make this thing work. Unfortunately, they were really bad businessmen. It got ripped off. And the ripoff was in every plane during World War II. That was the flux gate. Grandfather's invention was the flux valve. But that was an example of um, little guys. Um, big corporations, when I can run, when I first started working with big corporations, I even back in when I was in my 20s, I used to say big corporations get bureaucratic hardening of the arteries. That's what I used to call it, where they're too rigid to take a new idea. Also, I know people that are on the spectrum, people that are different, they all have small businesses. Or they work in a big business where he's the strange guy in the shop. I worked with one of those in the 80s and the early 90s. He's the weird guy in the shop. And they just let him kind of do his thing. And then he got shipped off to another factory. And that was a disaster for him because they didn't let him uh, do his own thing. I know a guy has a food factory. I call it Willy Wonka in stainless steel. I can't tell you what he makes or what he does. I signed a non-disclosure agreement. But I flew on his jet. I can't tell you where it went. This guy has a jet. And he's in his 70s. And I sat down with him. And we discussed every label he would have started out dirt poor, started washing equipment in food factories, then maintaining, then building. And you see the more corporate types don't recognize the value of that. Now, my brother, who's completely normal, but he likes to build things. And, uh, he worked for a bank. He had jobs like he had to find the million dollars that this bank lost, you know, and track it down. But little guys innovate. I mean, it, it's, uh, or they might be in a bigger company, but they're running. You know, you take someone like Elon Musk. I've read the book about him. Bullied in school, kind of different kind of kid. Learned how to work really hard. And he's a, he gets stuff done. He gets physical stuff done. And that is something I really like. You know, I think what's happening now is we got so much taken over by the financial people. I read a hideous article about them buying trailer parks and jacking up the rent and forcing the people out and then they sell the land. That's the kind of stuff I just absolutely hate because I like doing uh, doing real things. But that's always been, I don't care what industry you're in, small guys innovate because you got to come up with an ideas that are totally different. I was talking to somebody last night about, you know, used to just make hay in bales. And then somebody came up with the idea of wrapping the hay up round. That's a totally radical idea. You see, it's totally different. It's not an incremental improvement. It's totally radical. And at the time that that was invented, because I was going to ag meetings on equipment at the time, they had another machine that stacked great big loaves of hay. It was a failure. It was totally original too, but it did not work. It was on, they sold it for about five years and then it was terrible. The hay would rot. You see something innovative. It's something totally different. It's not just an incremental improvement on something. And then you have the things like the sheep ramp where I can make a very small incremental improvement that makes a huge difference. Or your paper, having those questions on the piece of paper at the vaccine site. You see, that's also important. Now, I've heard you talk about this, but I'm sure not everyone has. Uh, What would happen to innovation if we suddenly cured autism and ADHD and and, um, that was gone from the population? We'd pay a horrible price for that. 
In fact, there's a paper I love. And the title of this paper is Genomic Trade-Offs Are Autism and Schizophrenia the Steep Price for a Human Brain? The same genes that give humans a huge brain also involved with autism. And what happens in autism is you might build extra circuits back here in the art math, art math department. Uh, in schizophrenia, you build a skimpy network that falls apart. But you see, it's both involved with brain development. And you no, know, we pay a horrible price. Because my grandfather, he, he implemented the other autistic guy's idea. Other places turned it down and said, well, that's just stupid. They wouldn't even look at it. The big aviation companies said, well, that's stupid. Don't you know that everybody's working with compass needles? And my grandfather looks at it, and he goes, hmm, I can make that work. And so it was uh, the more the two minds working together there. And unfortunately, the, the guy who came up with the idea for the three coils uh, and a nervous breakdown ended up in the mental hospital. My grandfather had to bail him out after that. You know, my mother said the spark is gone and they didn't invent. They did some work on television, but they just couldn't get it off the ground. But it takes a different kind of mind to come up with totally innovative things. You know, like the RNA vaccine is an example of a totally innovative thing. And then, of course, you've worked in medical. That's been around in the in the labs for years because you couldn't get it past the FDA. Now we had emergencies, so that forced it. But that RNA platform is going to make cancer drugs and all kinds of other really good stuff. Yeah, you reminded me with I did not know the the Pfizer institutional story that you just told. Someone I'll talk about later. Clayton Christensen said one of the few cases in business history where a large established organization managed to innovate was IBM with their PC. And the way they did it was they formed a PC unit said, we want you in another state. We don't ever want to hear from you. Don't call us. We're not going to call you. Do what you want, and we don't care. Well, on the Pfizer thing, there's a very interesting interview on 60 Minutes with the lady scientist who was head of vaccine development, and she had a lot to do with getting Pfizer to open up the checkbook. She was out walking her dog, and she saw refrigerated trailers, the things we normally haul our food in, and she knew what was in them, dead bodies. And she said, right on 60 Minutes, this is personal. We got, you know, it. nothing else matters. Calls her boss up. Wow. The boss calls BioNTech and says the checkbook is open. Okay, so that's another interesting story behind it. That's fascinating. I call that taking this, the, the suit was out of the office and saw, I mean, awful. we had to take the things we haul our food in and fill them full of dead bodies. And she saw that walking her dog. It's on 60 Minutes. I think it came out like in December, an interview. And I guess the head of Pfizer called up BioNTech and said, get it out of the lab. The checkbook is open. Open checkbook. That was the words. So it's all kind of interesting story. when you look at how innovative things come about. Because when I did my animal welfare audits, when I first brought McDonald's executives, Wendy's and Burger King executives on the first trips to farms and slaughter plants, I watched the spreadsheets and all that stuff turn into something real. Animal welfare was no longer an abstraction. You delegate the lawyers and the PR department. It became real. I'll never forget the day Bob Langer uh, saw a half-dead dairy cow go into their product. He actually has a book out called The Battle to Do Good. But that was a suit out at the office. And now it was real. And, of course, the scientist from Pfizer saw those trailers and she goes, 
<sighs> Nothing else matters. That'll do it. So let me ask you to do a little speculation. My second assumption there that large bureaucratic enterprises hesitate to hire people like Temple Grandin. And if they do hire you, they're going to try to put the round peg in the square hole or vice versa. You changed the way hundreds of millions, billions of animals are treated through their lives and, and reduced their, you know, made them happier in their lives and less pain in their deaths. Could you have done any of that had you been working, say, for the government or for a large corporation? No. It started out, when I first started out, I thought I could fix everything with equipment. So I got sent a tractor strainer system on putting all those big plants. This was early 90s. Half of my plants tore up and wrecked it, which was very disheartening. And then uh, the other half ran it sort of right. And then I developed a very simple way to evaluate the plants using the scoring system. And I started training them, the uh, auditors that the um, that McDonald's had. And at first they were kind of skeptical, but then when they saw how much it changed things, they, it took off and it was almost sort of under the radar. It spread through the supply chain. I don't even think, I never met the lawyers. I never met the CEO. It, it, it sort of just was like, you know, stealth and a giant tipping point tipped. One thing I have learned, I tried early in my career working with government. I gave up on that. I talked to a lady on the plane the other day that was um, working on a whole bunch of stuff with autonomous cars. She was on an autonomous car engineer. And I suggested visualizing where I would try it. And I said, I'm going to take this big I-80 highway across Nebraska. If I can talk to governor of Nebraska, this, I'll use that, you know, the test autonomous trucks. And I'll paint the, we, we talked about how we're going to have to paint the lines on the road really good. That really, really, really matters. And she was kind of incredulous that um, this was on the flight. I talked to her for one of the whole flights that I wasn't going to do much with government. Uh, you know, or if I did, I'd work with one state. But let's start doing the autonomous truck in a place where it's easy. Straight intersection. Nebraska is a long state. Got an eight-hour drive. I can then run that truck with one driver instead of two. There's no way I'm going to put that expensive stuff out there unattended. Oh, somebody's going to spoof those sensors and rip it off. All I got to do is stuff a shirt and pants with newspapers and put a Halloween mask on top. And that thing's going to pull off the highway for that. You see, I see that. But if I could run it, if I could have some sections of the trip where he could sleep. You see, now I'm visualizing that. And we talked for two hours about this. And it'd be easy to fix the stripes on the road. And we could get the same painting contract and just have them paint. No, they've got to be right. But I've, I've sort of like put my head around a bite I could, and I've been on that highway. It's the artery. It's the um, east-west artery across the country. And I'd start with something like that where it's going to be a whole lot easier to make the trucks work. No, we're going to have a driver in there. He's going he's gonna to take it into town and back it up to the loading dock. Now I'm seeing the loading dock for our local Walgreens, which is like the truck driver's nightmare for loading dock. you got to jackknife the trailer like that to get it in this loading dock. But there's a place for visual thinking to kind of simplify, you know, where, where, would, where would I try this to try to go completely autonomous? I'm not going to do it in downtown Denver where the exits are all painted wrong and it forces yep. you off the highway. 
and, and then they build new highway and they lay the exit out wrong. That's going to be a real mess. From the vantage point of someone who is neurologically atypical, there's something unique about the environment of small entrepreneurial enterprises. Yes. We're independent yes. contractors. Work, and I've worked with the small ones that stayed very small. And I've, I've worked with some that, you know, they got really big. But it starts out with a single guy in the, in the shop. I know a guy that sells stuff internationally who's ADHD, autistic, stutters, everything else, terrible student, took welding. He's selling stuff he fabricates around the world. He's got about 20 patents, all mechanical things, what I call the clever engineering department. And this is the stuff that we're we're losing. And you need the whole team. I can't design the electronic stuff that's on that truck, but I think I could help them a lot on let's let's start trying it in a place where I think I can make it work. You see, because I don't have to deal with all the gnarly exits that are, that are wrong. In your, in your own career, I know before you got your doctorate, you were doing work on commission. Uh, Everything. I've been a freelancer all my life. Um, the other thing that helped with that is if one project really, really messed up, you know, you'd go on to another project. And I've had offers to work for companies. And I'm going, no, don't want to do that. You know, then I've seen places where you're absolutely right about IBM, what made that a separate thing. And now, and now within big corporations, I did work with some of what I call the, the, the odd guy in the shop. And in some situations, he was allowed to just do his thing. There was one guy who was an elect- electrical genius. I worked with him. And, he's on, and there was another guy where they used to say, if you ask Tom what time it is, he'll tell you how to build a watch. And he was a guy who worked for a big corporation in the rendering department. And we used to like to just talk for hours about how to build stuff. Yeah, I wonder too. There are a lot of a lot of people at Mercatus and IHS who are interested in the gig economy, in freelancing, and uh, I've met people who. Well, I was an Uber driver that I, I always talk to Uber drivers because their stories are interesting. Yeah. One of them was a young guy who was a strong-looking guy who had been a construction worker and had cancer, and he was. Apparently on demand, he was free of the cancer, but he no longer had the strength to work eight hours a day in a straight stretch. He said, I can work four hours, then I have to go home and take a nap, and I can work four hours again. And on a good day, I can take another nap and work another four hours, but I cannot work a stretch. He said, and I wondered whether I would be able to earn a living. And someone told me about Uber and he said, I'll do that. I'll do three shifts. I'm making plenty of money. I'm, I'm independent, but I could never work in a conventional job. And in his case made me wonder for neurologically atypical people, um, I don't know, ADHD people, ADHD people, for instance, who might not be able to work nine to five and be productive, but can work in short bursts and bursts and bursts and we have a lot of people who are really not happy with the gig economy and well, allowing it to come. One of the problems we got, like the video game gig economy, is you got so many kids that want to be in that. They pay them nothing. They get the game made. They kind of chuck them out. One advantage I had and the people I work with had is it was specialized enough that you didn't have 50 people trying to do the same project. You see, they, uh, you take something like the rover camera. That's highly specialized. See, those are the kind of perfect places for these small um, small businesses. I visited the shop of another company that makes the devices that pushes the payload out of a satellite to get out of the rocket uh, cone to get it um, launched. And a uh, small shop, but you're, you're not talking about somebody that's making 
uh, 10,000 of these things a year. You see, that that kind of stuff really works. Where programming video games, you've got 50 kids that want to do it and paying them nothing. And then when the game's done, they're just kind of kicked out. Then they're fighting over the next job. That doesn't work real, real well. You know, the people, I'll, everybody I've looked at, it's highly specialized, but something that's a niche, but a really important niche, because if the device for pushing the satellite out doesn't work, and one of them, he, he got the idea from trunk uh, lid that opens up when you press the key. Well, your whole, right, it, it, if you can't get the satellite out of the, out of the rocket, it's wasted. So it's very, very mission critical, this device, with an idea that came from a trunk lid that opens up when you push the key. I used to give, when I was teaching undergraduates as professor at the University of Richmond, I used to give them standard advice, which is make sure by the time you get out of this place, you're good at at least two things, not just one thing. There are lots of people who are good at anything you want to do, but they're going to be rare combinations. I had one student who was a business major and studio art double major, which was a very weird combination that no one ever heard of. But she ended up coming out of the university as the only person out there who was both a talented artist and knew something about how to run a business. And uh, she ended up running museums. Uh, and that, you know, What kind of advice do you give the students who, who come through your, your university about how to make it in life. Regular students, any student in, let's say, an undergraduate, I say, do internships. Try on jobs. Okay, everybody wants, in animals wants to be a veterinarian because that's the only animal queer they get exposed to. Okay, now you need to go and shadow a veterinary practice and find out is a pet practice something you really want to do. So one student tries that and goes, I love it. Another student goes, that's not for me. So doing internships, trying stuff on. I, I would I tell that to every student. Too many students get pushed by their parents to become a doctor or a lawyer and hate it. You know, that you, you don't want to end up doing that. The other thing that I figured out very early in my career is I figured out if I find the right people, they can open the door. Like there's a scene in the HBO movie where I go up and I get the editor's card because I knew if I wrote for that magazine, that would really help my career. And then I produced the article that got me into a press pass in the in big expensive meetings. And I got the editor for our national magazines card. I saw those back doors. And I find a lot of parents get so much into the verbal educational world. They don't think to maybe have their autistic kid work at their friend's florist shop. Just something simple like that that doesn't have too much multitasking where they can learn some job skills. And the other thing is the educational establishment verbal world is totally separated from all things in industry. They don't understand how how a shipping container even, they don't even know what it is. You see that we've got a whole bunch of people now coming into the educational field where they're totally separated from the world of the practical. Yeah, like this thing in Texas, I, I couldn't believe that they four different types of power all froze. And then I'm thinking, then, then I'm immediately thinking, all right, if the thing that froze is on the premises of the power plant, that's a lot easier to fix than a distributed mess that's on every wind, windmill or, or on the, the you know, different wellheads. So my first inclination would be, even if I couldn't go there, get out there with your phone or get on FaceTime, show me the thing that froze. And I think you can build a building over it because it's on site. 
Okay, see, I kind of see that. I, like the, the, my first thing was a distributed problem, which is going to be expensive, versus something that's right there on the plant's premises. It's always easier to fix something that's on the plant premises. Right. I mentioned late Clayton Christensen earlier. He wrote what I think is the most important book on healthcare innovation in the last 30 years. It was called The Innovator's Prescription. And he looked, uh, among other things, at the state of medical education and said that uh, around 1910, we adopted a model that became absolutely uniform across medical schools and mandatory. And he characterized it as fixed time variable learning. Everybody in the class is going to go through all the courses in med school at precisely the same length of time every semester. Some of them are going to end up, because of that, spending too much time in that course. They got the whole course in the first month, and the rest of the time was twiddling their thumbs waiting for the semester to end. Other people in a particular course might not learn all the material by the end of the course. And so they come out of it with different amounts of learning, and he contrasted it with what became known as the Toyota methods, uh, which was fixed learning variable time. So it was a sequence of courses that Toyota workers go through, and it's you're going to do segment one until you learn everything. If you learn it on the first day, then you're done. If it takes you a month to do it or two months, then you're going to take a month or two. And then you move on to the next. So the idea is that everyone comes out with a full grasp of the uh, of the subject and no wasted time after they've already acquired that. Now, you teach in the university, um, let's say, a more practical sort of a, a program, I think, than, than probably the pure liberal arts ones that I went through. But can you talk about that, the state of education and how we actually teach college students? Well, and then let's go back to high school students. I've been in some school districts. They can learn English, algebra, and sports, and that's about it. But I don't know what's going on in the, in the high schools in this um, in this last five or six years because these students don't know how to write. Just write clearly. I find out they've never done book reports. They've never had the work marked up and corrected. They say that hurts self-esteem. I think they don't want to take the time to correct the homework. This is getting to be more and more of a problem because when I look back on things I did in my career, uh, writing was a very, very important part of it, a really important part of it. Because I would do a pro- I design a project and then I wrote about it. I wrote about it. We're screening out the people who can sometimes think up the practical problem solving. All right, you said the vaccine site that you did was very, very efficient. You helped them by getting the, um, the questions on a piece of paper. But they get a lot of volunteers involved in that. And some of those volunteers probably the ones that figured out how to do the traffic model. Because if you're doing a drive-through vaccine thing, so you've got to have that 15-minute period to wait. So you've got to figure out how to time that and keep the cars going and not have them blocking up a highway exit. See, that's visual thinking. And those volunteers probably got together and thought a lot of that stuff up. Yes, I um, before I was an economist, I was a newspaper reporter. And uh, my first big job out of grad school, guy hired me. And uh, years later, I asked him, I, I had had no expertise in the field, which was studying sub-Saharan Africa. Now, years later, I said, why'd you hire me? And uh, he gave me a couple of reasons, but uh, two of them were, he said, first of all, 
you had no expertise in it. And I was sick of everyone who did have expertise in, in the field. But the second thing was, he said, I was under the impression that there were approximately seven economists in the United States capable of writing a complete sentence in the English language. And I wanted to have one of them. Um, so I always stressed with my students that they need to learn to write. I don't care how good you are. And, and actually, when I was a professor, I eventually stopped asking signing papers because I simply couldn't stand to read what was coming into my office and seeing what passed for writing in a group of very smart students. Well, just this, is a, the problem. this is a problem I've talked to a lot of professors this last five or six years. We've got students that their writing skills are absolutely atrocious in just writing something clearly on like how you did your experiment. You know, how'd you house your animals? What, you know, did you do? Just tell me clearly. Or you get jargon-laden nonsense. I just read some this morning. Why don't you say that a person spoke to somebody else? They didn't have uh, vocal emissions. I'm going, yeah, they, really? These you students of mine, yeah. <laughs> these students of mine, many of them had, I don't know, almost Harvard-level SATs. Yep. And, and they worked very hard. They couldn't write a sentence. Well, and this uh, is the problem that I'm seeing. And one of the reasons why my writing in ninth grade was better than these students, because my teachers would mark up my work. I had to write book reports where you have to summarize the book. I think writing book reports is important because you have to summarize the book and summarize it accurately. And then you critique it. And I think that's a really important skill and summarize it clearly. And I find out they never wrote a book report, hardly wrote any term papers, never had anything marked up. And they said, well, you got, you know, you know, the software can correct stuff. Well, no, it can't. I'm finding that I'm having to correct it. And I want to get their writing from atrocious to usable. I tried. And writing, I mean, I, uh, algebra couldn't, you know, horrible, it, uh, couldn't do math. I could do the old fashioned arithmetic the way they used to teach it up to sixth grade. Find the area of a circle. I could do that just fine. I'm worried about we don't have people who know how to do things. I mean, I think some of the stuff that went on in Texas, you didn't have a visual thinker there screaming, going, well, this could break. And you've got people in charge of it where some of them weren't even in the state. It's all spreadsheets and numbers and abstractions. Well, you had people die from carbon monoxide poisoning because they were doing things like using a charcoal grill in the house for heat. And they didn't know they'd get carbon monoxide poisoning from that. Well, I think it's time for me to turn it over to Josh. All right. Uh, thanks again. We are just so grateful uh, for the talk and uh, and thank you for your life's work and making the world a better place. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed being on this uh, podcast. Thanks for me too, Temple. It was always Bye. a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.